Are we here? Are we all warmed up? Oh man, we made it, right? Today. We, uh, we're so glad you're here. And if this is your first Sunday at Windsor Road, uh, I just want to extend a warm welcome. Uh, my name is Randy Boltinghouse, and I'm just privileged to uh, serve as the lead pastor here at the church. And uh, we, I, I really hope that you leave this room and our campus um, with the message of this last song that we just sang, just etched in your heart, uh, that, uh, that God, listen, God is for you. He is for you. And this is why we are a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Him, uh, because he's, he's for us. And uh, we are in a series of messages now that talk about that. The series is called Parables of Grace. Parables of Grace. And um, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And I'm going to be reading verses 9 through 14. And you'll find Luke 18 uh, on page 877 of your church Bibles. And... um, And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, uh, just take that copy that's in the pouch in front of you, put your name in it, and just receive it as a gift from from this church family. Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable, that is Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house, justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. A few years ago, I saw a really spooky movie. Has anybody here ever seen The Sixth Sense? Ooh, man. You know, it's uh, that movie about, um, you know, Bruce Willis stars in it, and he plays this child psychologist who is you know, treating this little boy who claims to have visitations by ghosts, you know. And it's really eerie, and, and, you know, after all of these years, this, 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 the one quotable quote from that movie, 
I think whether or not you've seen the movie, you know the quotable quote. You know what I'm talking about? Can we, can we all say it and on three? One, two, three. I see dead people. See, you know, don't you? You know that, right? Wow, I see dead people. <laughs> Bruce Willis says, Bruce Willis says, well, I mean, like, in the grave, in the coffin, Cole says, everywhere. Little boy's name is Cole in the movie, right? They're everywhere. And, and they, they, they can't see each other. They just see what they want to see. And then Cole says this. They don't know they're dead. I see dead people. <laughs> I thought about that movie when I read these verses here. I did. Because you really got to get that quote. You, you, you really got to really let that quote hover these verses if you're really going to get these verses. These verses about two who went to the temple. Jesus tells a parable about two who went to the temple. Twice a day. Every day. God-fearing Gentiles and Hebrews would stream into the temple compound in Jerusalem twice a day. The faithful would. About 9 o'clock in the morning and then about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The call to prayer. And, uh, you know, the temple in Jerusalem was really a series of concentric squares. And so there would be the court of the Gentiles uh, and then... And then uh, then there would be the court of Israel, and then within that would be the court of Israel's men, and then within that would be the court of the priest, until finally you get to this one little square, this cube really is what it was, the, the most holy place where the high priest would enter once a year. And, and so it was time. And these God-fearing Gentiles and Hebrews would come streaming into the the temple. And of course, these Hebrew, two Hebrew men would come and and they went up the stairs into the court of Israel. And there they would see the priest offer the daily sacrifice, this unblemished lamb uh, that would be uh, taken and and, uh, tied and then slain and then sectioned and then uh, the, the smoke would rise up and then because that lamb was a substitutionary lamb. It was a sin offering. The life of the lamb instead of the life of God's people. And, and for one day, God's judgment would be postponed. And then it would happen again the next day. And, and then the priest after that would then offer um, uh, an incense sacrifice. And the incense would go into the fire and the water would evaporate and the smoke would rise and that would symbolize the prayers of God's people. And so hundreds of Hebrew men streamed into that court of Israel's men. And Jesus says that there were two specific men that went into that. And one of them was a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Verse 10. Now, we've been conditioned to think of Pharisees as the bad guys, right? They're the bad guys. And some of them really were. 
But I can tell you this much. If uh, you had a choice between your daughter marrying a Pharisee or a tax collector, 100 times out of 100, you'd choose the Pharisee. You would, because he was a good guy. He was moral. He was upstanding. Uh, He was a one-woman man. Uh, uh, He was reputable. He would be the kind of guy who would, if there was a Jerusalem rotary, he'd he'd be one of the chairs of the committee. He would. He was just wonderful. Uh, uh, And, oh my goodness, uh, he'd fit in, uh, especially at at church. You know why? Because he was a tither. That's why. Oh, yeah. And he just didn't tithe his paycheck. He tithed his birthday presents, you know? I mean, and then he practiced fasting as well. Fasting, the discipline of uh, withholding food and water for spiritual purposes so you can focus on God. This guy fasted twice a week, probably on Monday and Thursday. You see, uh, Thursday was the day that Moses went up uh, on the Mount Sinai to receive the law, and he was gone 40 days. And then 40 days later, he came back on a Monday, twice a week. This guy fasted. And Jesus lets us overhear his prayer to God there at the time of prayer. Let's listen in. He says, verse 11, Standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you. Let's stop right there. That was a good start. Really was. When you think about it, gratitude, appreciation, thankfulness, those are the health of these emotions that you can feel, aren't they? I mean, they're just they're good, healthy, wonderful emotions by healthy people. Healthy people express gratitude and appreciation depending on what it is you're grateful for. I thank you that I'm not like other men, adulterers, unjust, extortioners, or even like this tax collector. Whoops! Did he really say that? Oh, God, I thank you for how great I am. God, God, I thank you that for decades now, these people have had me as their pastor. I thank you that I'm not like all the pastoral schmucks who've run off with church offerings or split churches or, 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 or trashed their marriage. God, I thank you that every week these people come and hear my amazing, riveting pulpit rhetoric. God, I thank you for me. <laughs> You're welcome. They really say that? He really said that. Not making it up. In his prayer, he says, I, five times. I, 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 I. Wow. And then he begins comparing himself hor- horizontally. Did you get that? See? Assuming that God grades on the curve. And then Jesus gives this commentary about his life. Comments on his life. He says, when this man left that temple, when he left the court of Israel's men and 
walked out of the court of Israel and walked out of the court of the Gentiles. And when he goes back to his associations, when he goes back to work, when he goes back home, when he goes back to his family, Jesus says it's as if he never went to that temple at all. This guy is a good guy who went to church, who walked out of that church on his way to hell. Does he even know what he just did? Is there any sense of self-awareness that's going on here? Does he even get it? Does he? My goodness. What is that? What was that? What was that about? What was, what was this guy's problem? You know what his problem was? His, someone put it this way. This guy had the problem of righteousness. The problem of righteousness. Now, when we think about the word righteous in a room like this, on a campus like this, in a church, when we think about righteousness, we think about, you know, people who are good or they have good hearts or they do good or they perform religious deeds, etc., etc. But I want you to think a little deeper about what the word righteousness means because it really has something to do with the word accreditation or approval so that, you know, in order to drive on the streets in Illinois, you need to have a license. And in order to get that license, you need to be accredited. You've got to go through the necessary steps to be approved, to be recognized, so that you can get the license. If you want to practice medicine, uh, you've got to have a license. And to get the license, you've got to be approved. You've got to be accredited. You've got to go through a recognition process. If you want to practice law, if you want to deal in the financial industry, if you want to teach in education, you've got to be certified. You've got to have recognition. You've got to have accreditation. Uh, But you see, this kind of thing goes beyond just one's vocation. This this idea of righteousness as accreditation, as acceptance, as recognition, touches the very core of who we are as people because we want our lives to matter. We want our lives to have meaning and purpose. We, We want to feel accepted and approved and recognized. And so different cultures, and this is a universal thing throughout the world, uh, um, and different cultures then express this differently. So in some cultures, this might come through glory on the battlefield, or other cultures it might come through you know, striking out and gaining your fortune, or in other cultures it might going on an educational uh, expedition or quest, or, or in America, it's about attaining the American dream. The American dream. This, this, this uh, search, this journey for accreditation, approval, acceptance. I'm thinking of a movie called The Natural in which Robert Redford plays this aging ball player, a guy named Roy Hobbs, and he wants to get back into the major leagues. And he's striving and striving and striving and his... Uh, girlfriend in the movie, a character played by Glenn Close, uh, says, you know, why are you striving? And, and, and uh, uh, Robert Redford, his character, he says, so that when I walk down the sidewalk downtown, people will look at me and they will say, there goes Roy Hobbs, the greatest baseball player who ever lived, the best who ever was. That's what I'm talking about right here. This quest for 
accreditation, approval, acceptance. And really all of us carry that. All of us carry that. And you just take out the word baseball player and you put in whatever is relevant in your life. We all carry that. And, and, and I don't want to be misunderstood. That drive comes straight from Genesis chapter 2 with our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, who found their recognition, who found their approval, who found their acceptance in community with the holy God where in the cool of the day they would walk with the Lord God and he was their acceptance and he was their approval and he was their satisfaction and it was paradise until they chose some other means of accreditation, buying into the lie of the evil one and thus setting themselves a standard apart from the living God. And uh, so you see, sin is not just a matter of law-breaking, Sin is a matter of law-making, where we make something else a standard that we will then attain. And then when we attain that, we will then use that to look down on other people. You see? Uh, I think one of the most telling verses in all Scripture is Judges chapter 21-25, where it says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. You see that there? Lawmaking. And our world sees that today. And you know what our world calls that? Diversity. Diversity. And this Pharisee was lawmaking. I mean, why else would he say, I fast twice a week? Who told him he had to do that? God never did. You will not find a verse in the Hebrew Bible that commands God's people to fast twice a week. God only told his people to fast once a year. But you see, he, he said, well, I'm, we're going to go beyond that. I'm going to fast twice. And then see, he makes that the standard by which he judges other people. My goodness. Do you see why it's so hard for God to reach religious people? And you know what the irony is? The irony is, look where the guy is. He's in the temple. What's the temple? A meeting place between God and people. But that guy, there by the altar where the lamb is sacrificed, he doesn't think it's for him. He doesn't think it's for him. It's for someone else. Who? Well, he thinks it's for the tax collector. That's who. The tax collector. Let's talk about him for a little bit. In Jesus, you would not want your daughter marrying a tax collector. You wouldn't. In, in, in those days, tax collectors were considered traitors because, you know, this guy got into the court of Israel's men. So he was Hebrew, but you see, he had sold out to an occupied, foreign, pagan, Gentile power, Rome. The tax collectors were uh, uh, this league of notoriously corrupt scoundrels and here's what's interesting about this parable. You can see this. Look back at the parable again. The, the, the rhetoric of it. The Pharisee's posture is described briefly while his prayer is long. 
The tax collector's posture is described at length while his prayer is brief. Isn't that interesting? Standing alone, Jesus says. In other words, the guy, can't, he cannot even look to heaven. Beating his chest in grief over himself, all he can say is literally, Lord, let this atonement be for me, the sinner. That is, let this lamb, let what's going on at the altar right now be applied to me, the sinner. He prays as if he's the only one there at the temple. And Christ shocks the audience when he says that the wrong type went home forgiven and justified and acquitted. Everyone, everyone within Christ's hearing, everyone was expecting Jesus to say that it was the Pharisee that went home forgiven. But no, no. It was the tax code. And why? Because, church family, the Pharisee saw his goodness and he thought he was safe. But the tax collector saw his sin and he knew he was lost. The Pharisee thought that his goodness would get him into heaven. The tax collector knew that only God could keep him out of hell. The Pharisee trusted in his morality. The tax collector trusted in God's mercy. And so it's no wonder that uh, my um, preaching teacher said this about this parable. Don Sanukian said that this is a story about a good man who went to hell and a bad man who went to heaven. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Wow. What's the significance of this? What's the the point that Jesus is making here? Well, here's what he's not making. Listen, Jesus' point in telling this is not, now, everyone, try harder to be more humble. That's not the point. It's not. The the point is not, now, now try not to talk about yourself so much when you pray, okay? That's not the point either. And, And the point is not, well, now try hitting yourself if you want to get rid of pride. No, please do not leave this room thinking that Jesus' point is, um, here's what you need to do, you're not doing it, try harder. That's not the point. It's not. Because you see, at its core, Christianity is not about moral improvement. At its core, Christianity is not about reforming the reformable. Or improving the improvable. It's not what Christianity is about. At its core, look up here, Christianity is about resurrection. At its core, Christianity is about calling dead people back to life. And thus, that quotable quote, I see dead people. This parable is about two who are dead, but only one knows it. It's about two who are dead. But only one has asked to be raised from the dead. See? Speaking of asking, what did the the Pharisee ask for in this prayer? Nothing. You know why? 
because he didn't think he needed anything. That's why. He doesn't see his need for help. He doesn't see the deficit. And so as long as he doesn't think he's dead, why would he ask God to give him life? He can't. He's unable. You know, we can, we can talk about how the gospel begins with God, and it is so true. The gospel always begins with God, who is this amazing creator, maker, ruler, redeemer, lover, splendid, beautiful. I mean, we can, but you know what? If you don't see your need for, that's not going to connect. It's not going to connect at all. Um. I've got a book in my library uh, written by an author named John Z. Z, period. I don't know what his last name is. John Z. The name of the book is Grace in Addiction. And he tells a wonderful story about someone who, who found hope in the middle of his hopelessness. He tells about a guy named Chuck... Uh, who lived in the Cleveland area. Uh, Chuck belonged to an Alcoholics Anonymous group. And Chuck was called to go to the top of this penthouse in this very plush, plush place in a section of Cleveland called the Gold Coast. Now, I've been to Cleveland, and I didn't know there was a place called the Gold Coast. No offense to Clevelandites here, okay? But he goes into this uh, penthouse and goes up to the top and he like steps in what he calls plush carpet all the way up to his ankles. He sees this guy who's there they're sitting at this uh, ivory sofa and the guy has a martini in his hand. First thing out of this guy's mouth is, I want to kill myself. Chuck looks at him and says, okay, well, can I have a pencil and a piece of paper? And the guy says, didn't you hear me? I said, I want to kill myself. To which the guy says, didn't you hear me? I need a pencil and a piece of paper. And the the guy, uh, you know, mumbles something about pencil and paper being over the kitchen. So Chuck goes over, gets the pencil and the paper, comes back and sits by the guy, says, so you want to kill yourself? The guy says, yeah, I want to kill myself. And, And Chuck says, okay. Hands him the pencil and paper and says, sign all of this over to me and I'll push you. (laughs) Your guy becomes completely undone, totally unexpecting that. And it opened the door to a conversation about false hope versus real hope. And that's really where the gospel comes in. Because you see, the gospel offers real hope. Real hope. And ironically, it's only when we come face to face with our utter hopelessness that we cry out, God, I need you. God, my only hope is in your son who can raise the dead. God, I am dead. I need life. And so you see, that's why Jesus condemns the Pharisee because the Pharisee takes his stand on a life God cannot use. 
And Jesus commends the tax collector because the tax collector rests his case on a death that God can use. Don't you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus can't use your life, but he can use your death. Which leads to the question, okay, well, how can I become more and more aware of my you know, spiritual deafness? How can I become more and more aware of my need for God? And that's why I've given you devotions for this week in terms of your outlines. Um, this week's outline has a week's worth of just devotions. And, and that means getting by yourself this week, unplugging from your technology, opening the Bible to see this parable and live in this parable. Soren Kierkegaard was a Christian philosopher and theologian who lived in the 1800s and he wrote about this parable and he talked about how true change happens. And here's how true change happens. True change happens when we get alone with God because when we're alone with God, we're not comparing ourselves with anybody else. You see, that was the problem with this Pharisee. He was comparing himself horizontally. But the tax collector compared himself vertically. And when you are alone with God and you are in his presence, you do become amazed by his glory and his beauty and his splendor and his holiness. And it's like I've never seen anything like this. This is more beautiful than sunrise in the Grand Canyon. This amazing creator God who is majestic and holy and kingly and regal. And I just can't stop gazing at his wonder and glory and holiness. When you're alone with God, that happens. And then on the heels of that, on the heels of that, being aware of God's beauty and splendor and holiness, you become very aware of your own personal inadequacy. And that's why the prophet Isaiah, when he just said that the hem of the glory of God, he realized, woe to me, I'm undone. I'm undone. He's holy, I'm not. There, and, and this self-awareness leads to the danger. Someone said it is a dangerous thing to be in the presence of a holy God. You're about as safe in the presence of a holy God as being ankle deep in water while trying to work on your electrical panel. You cry out, God, I, you are holy. I am not. I am in trouble. I need help. And that's where the gospel comes in because the gospel is about our untamed, unsafe, loving, merciful God who saw our sin falling short of his standard and who himself provides the sacrifice. The gospel is that the one who told this parable, Jesus Christ, is the same one who has set his face toward Jerusalem. He will lay down his life on the altar of the cross, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the perfect, unblemished, pure sacrifice, providing glorious mercy, and not just for one day, but forever and ever. Isn't that good news? Yes, isn't that good news? And when we, and we, when we share in communion, which we will in just a moment, that communion is a sign and a symbol that we just need God's mercy. 
May the mercy of your sacrifice, Jesus, pay for my sin. May the, have mercy, have mercy on my sin and have mercy on my righteousness because I don't even trust my motives enough when I'm righteous. I need help. You hear what Jesus is saying in this parable? God qualifies those who cry for mercy, not those who crow about their merits. God qualifies mercy criers, not merit crowers. And in Christ, we have his mercy, and we become so satisfied, his mercy overflows and floods our life and spills over, and then that leads us to help the under-resourced. And it leads us to do it in a, in a different way than we would otherwise. And it leads us to still tithe and beyond. But we do it for a different reason. And we, it leads us to still fast and practice spiritual disciplines and read our Bible and pray. But not so that it'll make us feel superior, but because we just love God. Because of love, love, love. You love God and you love people. There's just something inside out about my life. This parable reminds me that even the most religious person can miss the goal. And furthermore, if God is my father, then that means the tax collector, whoever he may be, whatever racial background or national background, whatever gifts and abilities he might have, that tax collector is my brother. And that, friends is a better kind of diversity. Where in our differences, we bow before the King of all mercy. Even to the point where it becomes unthinkable for us to pray, well, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee. <laughs> See, there's always a Pharisee lurking within us, right? God qualifies those who cry for mercy not those who crow about their merits. Oh, Jesus, take my bent away for thinking much of me and kill my pride and from this day with mercy make me free. Oh, Jesus, grant the gift to see the treasure that you are. And as the night eclipses me, oh, be my morning star. And now if I should serve or lead or give or mercy show, Oh, Jesus, let my love be freed and like a river flow. Oh, Jesus, be the treasure of my heart and all I do. And may the river of my love alone make much of you. And God's people said, Amen.